Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hey guys, today's show I have the pleasure of speaking with Chris Fennymore. Chris is a condo-focused realtor here in Calgary with CIR Realty. He's definitely a condo specialist. I really enjoy having him on the show. We talk about the current Calgary market, condo associations, reserve fund studies, building construction and post-tension cables, and the pros and cons of being in smaller condos versus larger ones. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Chris, just wanted to welcome you back to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. You've been on a couple times now, and uh, yeah, I'm super looking forward to jumping into this with you today. Maybe if you could just start off by telling our listeners about yourself and what's keeping you busy these days. Sure. Realtor in Calgary, Chris Fenimore. I mostly do residential, condo, and investments. And what's keeping me busy these days, just trying to keep informed. There's so many things going on that can move things in so many different directions. It's hard to keep up to date. So it's just trying to read as much as I can and pay attention to what's happening. Awesome, man. And part of what we're going to jump into today, it's going to be more condo focused, but we are going to try to kind of talk about the Calgary market and do a bit of a market update, that kind of thing as well, right? So yep. maybe, could you maybe just do a high level of what you've been seeing? So we're in the same areas, but you're more condo focused. Yeah, I love having you on and uh, diving into everything condos. So how's 2023 been? What have you seen? What are some of the nuances and stuff? Uh, it's good. I guess you could say it's finally the year that condos come back for a lot of people. I guess it was about April. You started to see marked increase in sales when compared to previous months, even going back to last year. And it's been really easy to sell a condo if it's priced right. There still are some pressures that are keeping the price down. But it has risen considerably, and a lot of condo owners are happy. I think generally, overall, the market's up about 13.5% for condos. Which is pretty huge, right? When you think about it, that's year over year is what you're saying, 13.5%? Year over year, yeah. But there's some segments that are lagging, is that right? So there's some areas that 2014 was the highest year on record, right? Is that right for condos? Yeah, 2014, 13 in some cases, 14 in others was the highest year for condos. Now, just for example, in the numbers, Overall, for condos, the average price at the end of 2014 was 323000 Currently, the average price is three hundred two. So we're still 20000 below what we got to in 2014 in terms of average price for condos. For example, our low point was in 2020 when the average price was 252000 at the end of 2020. So there's been wide swings in condos and they're up right now and a lot of people are happy. Now, the story is the inner city, just generally anything within 50th Ave or street in any direction between the downtown and those streets. And they're only looking at about 8.6% increase year over year in value. If you go to the suburbs, it's anywhere at lowest 15% and at the highest 30% increase. So the suburbs are seeing gains that are double and triple what the inner city is seeing on condos. Why do you think that is? What's the reason behind that? What's driving it? It's only theories, but I think part of the story is the reason why people are moving to Calgary. And I think a lot of the people that are moving to Calgary and end up renting or buying these condos, they're moving out of places that are 
are concrete jungles, let's say, lots of high rises, their only option for living is going to be a condo, and they're surrounded by all sorts of other condos. So when they come to Calgary, they don't necessarily want to go downtown. They don't want to go inner city. So they're looking in the suburbs. Price point probably has a bit to do with it. Say that the inner city is probably about 10 to 15% more expensive generally for the same product as what you'd be looking at in some of the northwest or southwest or southeast suburbs. And likely a smaller square footage and potentially an older building as well, right? As you get more to the inner city? Correct. Correct. Which oftentimes relates to higher condo fees, right? It all depends. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one to answer. Being very general, I guess, right? So it's, you're right, it's condo specific as to what that rate is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that the people coming here, they may not necessarily be families, could be singles, it could be couples, but they're not interested in that downtown lifestyle. That's not why they came. So while that is happening, but not in the large numbers that it's happening in the suburbs. I was hearing on some new build condos that the parking stall has gone up significantly, like the cost if you want to have, say, you know, a designated stall in the building. Have you noticed some of that happening as well? I haven't encountered that. I do know that the city of Calgary, especially in the inner city, is allowing more and more buildings to be built without parking stalls for every unit. So previously, they had to have at least one parking stall for every unit, whether there was going to be one sold with it or not. They are relaxing those rules, and so that may make the parking stalls a little bit more finite. Also, what you're noticing right now, so you're seeing a lot of new builds in the suburbs, in some of the newer areas, the four-story wood frame or six-story wood frame. But normally in the booms like 2006 and 2014, in our two previous boom times, you would see 40 to 50 pre-selling or proposed condo towers downtown. This time around, you're not seeing any of that. There's probably maybe, it's less than 10 in the inner city of new condo towers pre-selling right now. And I think part of the issue is, is that builders are running up against, they're not able to build the product and sell it for what they need to for it to be worthwhile. There may be some profit in there, but it's nowhere near what they're used to making. And so a lot of developers aren't going forward with projects like that. The suburbs lands a lot cheaper. And some of the projects that you may see going ahead in the inner city, it could be because the developers own that land for 20, 25 years. And that reduces their costs sort of to develop or it's empty parking lot, which reduces the cost. But yeah, there's not a lot of inner city condo building going on, not like there was in the two previous times where we were seeing this kind of mass immigration. That's interesting. Do you see much? Because I know that the city has almost like a grant program where they're going to do a conversion of you know existing buildings to more like a condo apartment style. Have you seen, and obviously there's a huge delay in getting that product to market, but have you seen any of those coming out or nobody? So about the city converting office buildings to yeah. rental? You bet, yeah. Yeah, so... I can't remember what the number is exactly. My old neighbor worked for the cities and city planning, and I believe there are between 10 and 15 buildings have been approved to be turned into rentals, office towers. So I think they've done about four or five. Most of these buildings are in the northwest part of downtown. So Eau Claire area surrounding Eau Claire, some of the older, smaller office buildings. But they are all throughout the inner city, and I believe there's about 10 to 15 that are approved already in process or waiting to get going. So that'll help a lot with the downtown in terms of 
keeping businesses open, more population downtown, more people living downtown, more people walking around on the streets helps businesses stay open. Yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned Eau Claire, so it needed some redevelopment and there's been some recent announcements, that kind of thing. Do you see that area, like gentrification kind of over the next, I don't know, three to five years, do you see that maybe a bit of an opportunity there? Probably in the next three to five years, because I think a lot of the development is large, long projects. Like one of them is under the mall. I think they've already started blocking off areas where they're going to start digging to put the C-Train station underground there. So I'm not a city developer, but probably my experience like five, six years out. And none of the gains that that could provide when they do redevelop Eau Claire Market, they won't happen until it's done. So there could be opportunities to get into some of the stuff there. A little bit cheaper than it might be once everything's complete. I do believe that Eau Claire is going to be a very nice area. The Princeton's down there, the Concord building's down there. Those red brick towers that were built in 81, as they get renovated and as the area improves, you'll probably see price improvements in those. It's just large luxury suites. And that's what it's always going to be there, even though they may fill it in with some other buildings with some normal size units. I think that because of the population of wealthy people in those buildings, I think the way Eau Claire is going to develop is kind of to be sort of a luxury area. You'll have shops and services. Now, this is all a prediction. I don't know for sure, but that's what I would expect in that area. Do you think there may be... For the right investor or the right person, there might be a bit of an opportunity in the larger luxury condo market in Calgary right now. Like if you were to compare, say, what you could get in Calgary to Toronto or Vancouver, it's probably still very affordable here, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it would be a long-term prospect because I believe in downtowns and I believe that Calgary is interested in growing its downtown and having more people live there. But this is a long-term strategy. And so once the downtown is established with some neighborhoods, much like Vancouver, Toronto, places where people live, then you're going to need these large condos big enough for families. So then those condos will be few and far between, especially at first until the demand shows up. And so I can't remember what it's called now, but the big red brick building in Eau Claire meets that. Also, the Westmount Tower, which... You can get really, really cheap. I've seen condos in there for less than 250 and they're like 1,500, 1,600 square feet. They've got a large condo fee and there's really nothing around there right now. But as the downtown develops, buildings like that will be offering something that it will be difficult to find the new buildings that get built. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you see other opportunities? The other thing I'd like to kind of talk about is like days on market, multiple offers. If someone reaches out to you and they're looking to maybe buy a condo in Calgary, like what kind of advice would you give them? So investing in condos in Calgary, I was actually, I just had a coffee with a friend this morning and we were talking about this and it's hard to invest in condos in Calgary because it's a long-term game. It might be a short-term game, but often it's a long-term game. You get the condo and you make sure that it's covering itself with the rent, but you're really not going to be very cash positive in most of Calgary's markets, given what rents are versus what you have to pay for the condo. You could be a little bit cash positive, which is great, but then our market changes so drastically so often. And so there's going to be periods in that ownership where it may be costing you per month to keep the property. But then at some point in the future, what happens or what has happened in the past, we see a big increase in a short period of time. 
and either in rents or in property value or both. And then that's the opportunity for the investor that invested at a good price, not expecting a huge return until some future time. Calgary's never been a real cash positive place for rentals. Sometimes you get lucky. Anybody who bought anything before 2005 is probably doing great, but it's not the same as other markets and the difference between rent versus own. I guess it makes sense, especially when you cost to borrow the money and also condo fees. So basically, if you want a cash flow, you're going to need a good size deposit on that condo. You can't expect to finance yeah. with very little down and cash flow, right? Is what you kind of exactly, yeah. Twenty percent down, you're probably cash flowing, but you're probably more looking at like 35 percent if you actually want some income from that property to get your numbers to work and have a bit of a buffer there. One thing I was reading online was the rental rates are up seventeen percent year over year, and that was I saw some higher numbers than that, but I thought the one bedroom was on average one bedroom, one bath apartment condo was. $1,800 right now. In I think I heard the same thing. There have been a, a couple of news stories on that. A friend of mine, Shaman Qureshi, he owns Hope Street Property Management. He's been on the radio a couple of times talking about this. Rents are up drastically. What that's doing is it is pushing people into the condo market. You can currently, in almost every case, if you've got a down payment, a decent down payment, you can buy a condo for cheaper than you can rent them. And oftentimes that savings is significant. So that is pushing people into the condo market, but of course, not everybody has a down payment, and so they're forced to rent. It's at a high point right now. It did reach a high point as well in 2006. You saw furnished one-bedroom apartments in 2006 renting for 2,500 a month, and these are apartments in like Vantage Point, which is attached to co-op there on 10th Street downtown. Yeah. And so that's not a luxury building, it's real entry-level building, and they're having no problem getting 2500 for a furnished rental in 2006, just because of the amount of people coming here. So I think if the number of people coming to town slows at all or wanes, then we'll see some easing, I think, in that rental market. Landlords' costs have gone up considerably, and in many cases, they're just trying to recoup their costs. But there are a few examples, of course, of Let's see what we can get. I was talking about this this morning. What happens when you may be able to get a huge number for rent on your place? What's happening then is your renter is picking you and you're not picking your renter. And oftentimes that doesn't turn out well. Not always, but oftentimes it doesn't. And so you may be getting 3500 a month when you should be getting 28 but you're only going to get that a couple of months and then they're going to break the lease and they're going to go and then you're going to have to find another person. And you may keep finding that new person, but your vacancy calculation starts to go up after time. And so that is happening. And then we're seeing that in many cases, landlords, I don't want to say gouging, but testing the market maybe is a friendlier way <laughs> to talk about it. Yeah. Okay, I got a bit of an interesting question for you. So one of the things I like about you is that you do a your own condo doc reviews as well, right? And you've been doing that for years. And yes. uh, so that means you pour into the reserve fund. And a lot of people would define themselves as a condo specialist, but I feel like you actually are one by going above and beyond and doing that. So let's say I'm a new buyer, I'm coming to Calgary, risk averse, but I want a condo. How are you going to help direct me as a buyer? Like building wise, like, you know, let's say if there was a building with that had only eight units or maybe 12 versus a larger condo, how are you going to evaluate that and kind of like navigate condos, I guess, for me. So 
the conversation I always have with new buyers, we sit down and have a meeting at the office first before we do anything. And we discuss all manner of things, namely what they're interested in and what they're looking for. And we just have a fulsome discussion about that. I mean, I have some experience with some of the different buildings, but it's really hard to evaluate a building because things can change overnight. And so it's really hard to evaluate a building beforehand. Of course, being in the industry, you hear of rumors and things that may affect the building that are going on just through the grapevine sort of thing. So that knowledge is always there. But what I tell them is that I'm going to be reviewing their condo documents. After I've done the review, we sit down together, usually for an hour to three hours, depending on how many documents there are to review. And I'm able to tell them, let's say 98%, what the next five years is going to look like. And then at that time, they can decide. But it's the confidence in going through the, the review. So I've had clients that in the review, we've discovered things that may affect their decision. But knowing about them ahead of time is valuable. I've had people that buy condos knowing that a special assessment is probably upcoming in the next two years. But we can calculate based on the documents in almost every case, approximately how much that special assessment is going to be, how much it's going to be to my client, and probably when it might have to happen. And so we can't sort of predict an emergency situation lightning striking a power box. We can't predict something like that. But in terms of the running and operation of the condo, we can give a clear picture or I can give a clear picture after reviewing the docs of what to expect over the next five years. In my experience, people that don't like condos or feel that condos are the worst or or hate condos, oftentimes they bought a condo, they moved in, they loved it, And then all of these things started happening that they didn't realize or expect to happen. And that's what soured them on the condo. If they had known this going into the condo and decided to buy it anyways, then they're going to have no problem when these things come up. And that's namely special assessments. You can go through the documents and you can see how much they're going to need to raise the condo fees to meet their obligations. All of this stuff can be calculated and found out in the documents. The one part that sometimes is lacking, and it depends on the condo. Smaller condos tend to have less meetings. Larger condos tend to need more. The minute meetings is what's going to tell you how the condo's being run, how efficiently it's being run. Do they attend to problems in a timely manner? Is there lots of complaints from owners coming through? That's where you'll find out what day-to-day living might be like in the condo it is in the meeting minutes and sometimes that's lacking so in those situations oftentimes it's good to try to talk to previous owners owners you might run into in the hallway as you're walking through the building or viewing the building just to get a feel for what day-to-day living is like but the condo documents tell you a great deal most realtors and i don't fault them for it we're taught in the real estate industry to Shed liability as as often as you can. Make sure that you're not responsible for a lot of these things. I have no problem being responsible for a condominium document review. I don't tell them whether it's good or it's bad. I don't tell them whether they should buy it or they should not. I just go through the information but make the decision. So I don't feel like at any risk. Plus the clients I work with, I know the clients. And they trust you and yeah, that, that kind of thing for sure. Yeah. Have you ever had a client, I'm sure you have, where they say, well, I'm going to pay for a third-party condo doc review. Have you had that? I haven't yet. No. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> well, like they must really 
trust you. And I, I don't know. I, I really like that idea that you have the ability to do it and just give them your an honest, unfiltered view of it, right? And after doing as many as you have, like it's awesome. Yeah, and just part of my core as well. I'm not a salesperson. I'm consultant. I'm here to help you make the best decision and protect you in the process and possibly save you money where I can. And experience is valuable. Yep, I agree. And what are some flags for you as you go through a condo doc review? What are some things that are like, oh, that's a flag for me or a concern? No meeting minutes at all can be a flag. What is that telling you? What are you kind of inferring or... Obviously, they're not organized. <laughs> yeah, oftentimes that would indicate sort of a disorganized or disinterested board. So they may have board members and they may communicate through email or in the hallways or things like that without meeting and having meeting minutes. It's unorganized. There's lots of things that are going on in a condo and you need to have discussions and back and forth about should be done. And so... Oftentimes in smaller condos, you won't see meeting minutes. And it's not necessarily a bad thing if you're able to talk to some of the people on the board. Because like I say, often you'll see that they've been emailing back and forth all the time. And there's lots of discussions happening about what's going on. But they're just not meeting as a board formally. It's rare that you see that. But after COVID, it was a bit of a concern because no buildings were meeting for a while and it took a few of them a little while to pick that back up but it's not often that i see that now another red flag would be if they're not putting in the reserve what the reserve fund study says they should be putting in so there'll be a table of contributions on all reserve fund studies an estimate of what should be put away into the reserve fund each year in order to make sure that they have funding for the necessary repairs that come up. And a lot of boards will fool with this a little bit. Just for example, let's say we're supposed to put in 20,000 this year, 30,000 next year, 40,000 the year after. Maybe we wanna put in 25,000 this year, 25,000 next year, and 30,000 the year after that. So that gets to the same number, but for the condo board, it's less of a jump in fees from year to year. And so maybe they'll do it that way. So they know their numbers to work with. But then some boards, they don't want to raise fees, the repairs or things that are expected are years away. And they feel like they can make that up later. And so it just becomes the longer and longer you wait to make up some of those differences the harder and harder it becomes. And that usually ends up in a special assessment. So a board that's consistently putting a bit less than the reserve fund recommends. In my experience, they special assess every five to 10 years, and it's usually a couple thousand per unit. And sometimes that ends up being the way they operate. I see. And they're just making up the difference and a shorting through that. Time. Yeah, in a one-time mm-hmm. sort of deal. Because... In reality, they're generally mismanaged. Yeah, um, yeah, They're fearful to put the fees too high because that does affect value. And I can understand the consideration on that and trying to keep fees low because part of the board's responsibility is to protect the value for the residents. And fees that are high do impact what people are willing to pay for the condo. But well-managed, well-taken-care-of, real tight-built condo it has value as well. 
Yeah. How would you evaluate your condo fees? You know, like anybody searching can look and like, oh, this one's 350, this one's 500, this one's 750. How would you, for your clients, kind of look at those and see, you know, are they taking the right amount and are they actually being efficient with that money? It seems, at least lately, that older condos generally have higher condo fees. Newer condos generally have lower condo fees. If you're looking at comparable condos, so the year built is similar, the size is similar, the floor location is similar, and one has a lot higher fees than the other, then that's something that probably should be investigated. There should be a reason why, and they should be able to find out. Like I said, in some cases, it's a bit of mismanagement at the beginning. In some cases, developers really lowball what the budget's going to be when they're building new condos. So the first couple of years when the board's formed, they realize that the budget's way low and they have to make it up. And so it's really hard to say to your residents, we've got to raise condo fees 20%. And so often they maybe do a half measure. We'll only raise them 10% or 15%. But then over time, that puts you in a deficit. So when the expenses do start coming up again, they either raise the condo fees to the level that they had to, and now they're a lot higher than they needed to be because had they been slowly raising them all through the time, then they would have had more savings, they would have had more options when repairs came up. In regards to condo fees, I have a theory around the next 20 years and condo ownership. And the last 20 years, we went through a low interest rate environment. So condos are savers, and I think I've said this before, but a lot of large condos are carrying bank accounts. The reserve funds in these condos are often 500, a million, $2 million. For the last 20 years, they've been only able to get like 0 0.9, 0 0.8, 1.1% on these savings. And so that's really impacted what they have in the reserve fund and what they have to go to the owners to get to keep the reserve fund funded. Over the next 20 years, if the interest rates stay where we're expecting to stay, and it's probably going to be in that 5 to 7%, a much higher interest rate environment, these condo savings are now going to be earning 4, 5, 6, 7%. Seen condo I recently reviewed was getting like 6.8% on their million dollar reserve fund. So you're talking a considerable amount of extra money that's going into these reserve funds just due to the higher interest rates. And so I foresee condos doing much better financially in that respect. And there may even be opportunities for some of the larger condos to reduce their fees. I know some of the larger buildings are holding $2 million in a reserve fund account. And if they're getting 5% on that money versus previously 09 that's a huge difference for those owners. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. That is definitely going to have an impact and a positive one for the condo owners. Yeah. I think so. Because I mean, 80s and 90s condos existed, but you didn't hear the complaints that you hear today. And a lot of the complaints that you hear today are related to cash calls and budgets and things like that. So I think that was one of the major factors and one of the major differences. Condos in the 80s and 90s enjoyed 20%, 18 12% interest rates, whereas condos in the 2000s till now, it's been abysmal. Yeah, for sure. Now, with the reserve fund study, there's a requirement. How often? What's the frequency required by law? That Every five years. It is five years. So that's an interesting point when I review condos nowadays, because 
not every condo reserve fund has taken into account the new inflation and interest rate environment. So some of the reserve funds that you're reading today that were done four and five years ago are way off in terms of the inflation and the expected interest rate return on the savings. And so a lot of them nowadays, you got to kind of go in yourself or use reserve funds that are newer, the couple buildings that have newer reserve funds that have taken into account the new interest rate environment and doing some comparisons and calculations that way. So some of the reserve funds, I would say, in some buildings really aren't worth anything. And that's why it's good that they do them every five years. And that's legislation from the Alberta government. I've seen some where it seems like it's not up to date, whether it's I don't know whose hands it's in or who's delayed it, but it's, what do you do in those scenarios? And have you come across that uh, where you're looking and it's like, well, where's the new current reserve fund? It was supposed to be out end of 2022. We're into 23. What do you do in those scenarios? I would say that's definitely a risk. Like I said, I can do some calculations. I can get a reserve fund that's newer from a building that's similar, but it's never going to be the same. And it's only going to be real rough estimates around what it could look like. So that is a risk. Usually what happens with the reserve fund is the board will say, oh, it's five years is up. We've got to get the reserve fund done. And they call the engineering company to come out and do the reserve fund study. And then there's a number of edits. So the engineering company does the reserve fund study. And then the board gets the draft copy. And then they may have some edits, maybe they built the fence themselves last year so we can take that off of the reserve fund. Uh, maybe the owners are responsible for windows and doors now. And so that comes up just little edits like that, or maybe boiler estimate on the reserve fund study was 10,000. And we've actually just gotten a couple of estimates and it's actually 20,000. So they'll throw those edits back and forth with the engineering company that's doing the study. And so then it ends up taking six months a year for the final draft of the study to come out so it's not guaranteed but if you can get in touch with one of the board members you can usually get your hands on a draft copy the reserve fund it won't be the final copy but at least the numbers will be somewhat updated compared to the last one what are the repercussions for a condo board that's legislated for five years and like you're saying it maybe it's they've gone back and forth for a year is there some sort of penalty or fine that can happen? As far as I know, no. I'm not aware of actually any kind of repercussions for any infractions from boards or management companies in that respect. As far as I know, the only avenue is small claims court and you've got to sue them. But as far as I know, the minister and the government can remove or cancel a board, I believe, if they're acting improperly. But I'm not aware of any fining system or anything like that for boards acting improperly. But again, if you can talk to the board members in those situations where you're not seeing what you should be seeing, there's documents not available, there could be an explanation. I'm not saying there's a good explanation, but it could be a satisfying explanation. It just takes a little bit more research. But at the end of the day, those types of condos where you're having trouble getting information that's required, legislated, it'll speak to the running of the condo. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And now if you were looking at an older building for a client, like I don't want to just, you know, think, oh, new product is best. Like how would you evaluate an older building and just see that, you know, maybe some of the delayed maintenance has been taken care of, that kind of thing? In Calgary, the one issue is the post-tension cables. 
a lot of our 79 to sort of 88 high rises were all built with post-tension cables, most of them anyways. If you need mortgage insurance, CMHC, you're putting less than 20% down. They won't insure the mortgage. I'm not sure. There's a third mortgage insurer besides Genworth and CMHC who I believe may insure those mortgages if you have less than 20% down. But I'm not sure what your interest rate's going to be and, and what that would be a better question for a mortgage broker. But it does limit the amount of people that can buy in some of those buildings. So other than that, other than post-tension cables, there are a lot of great buildings in Calgary that have been run really well, well-maintained. It's just a matter of going and seeing it. Exude is one building. It's like an architecturally significant it's on 11th Ave and 5th Street, I believe, or 11th Street and 5th Ave. And it's an older building, I believe 64 is when it was built, or 69, something like that. And it's just been really well maintained. It suffered like all of the condos in values going up, values going down, all of that kind of stuff, higher condo fees. People like the shiny new stuff, but you could get a pretty nice unit, fully renovated, usually at a hundred or more thousand dollar savings in the same area if you go to an older building. An older building is price is really the main attraction in the older buildings. Some of the difficulty, some of them can't have laundry or you're stuck with the under counter all in one laundry system. So there's some of those considerations to think about if you're looking at older buildings. But if it was built as a condo originally, then usually you can have laundry. If it was a conversion at some point in its history, then oftentimes you can't. Yeah. So if you would pick up on, obviously during your condo doc review, you're going to be looking at, oh, when was the roof replaced? When is it projected to be replaced again? Have the window, if it's an older building, kind of like you would assess a detached home, but it's just, it's going to be in the study. Is that right? Like you're going to, yeah. part of the evaluation. Like, And obviously you can see that when you walk through as well. Some of it you can see, not everything, but... And, and they will have on their audited financials, they always have, like if they've taken any money out of the reserve fund to do work around the building, that will let you know what they've done around the building and how much they spent. And so if you have a reserve fund that's three years old and you're reviewing the building, you can see if they've done some of the work that's in those previous three years on that reserve fund. And so what I do is I basically like add all these things up. And so let's say, the roof hasn't been replaced. It's scheduled to be replaced in 10 years, and it's going to cost this much money. So that's all gets added into what they're putting into the reserve fund, what's proposed to be put into the reserve fund. If they follow the reserve fund study, then the condo fees have to go up this much in this amount of time. All of that can be assessed in the condominium documents. Like on condo fees and saying what they'll be five years from now, I'm usually within 10 or $15 in, in most cases of what they actually end up being. And on special assessments, I'm usually within a couple hundred dollars, what they need for the ends up being the special assessment that we predicted. So it really is predictable. Going out past five years is somewhat hard to predict. You're dealing with personalities, different boards come in. And so it's somewhat harder to predict with confidence. But generally speaking, the next five years is pretty easy. Interesting. Maybe for the listeners, you mentioned post-tension cables. And you said 79 to 88, generally speaking, in the high-rises. Can you just explain what is post-tension cables and what was the purpose and what's the problem with them? Post-tension cables, it was a style of construction used in the 70s and 80s. 
for high-rise buildings. And what they would do is they'd run large steel cables through the floor plates of each floor, and not each floor, but through the entire building and attach them end to end. And so you'd have these large steel cables running through the floors of the buildings and they'd be attached end to end and in a way to hold the building together. What they discovered over time is that the cables tend to deteriorate over time and it's very hard to repair them if they're not constantly inspected. And in some of the worst cases, if they're not properly inspected, you end up with more cables failing and the building becomes, un, what's the word I'm looking ha- for? Habitable. Ha- you can't even, yeah, habitable. It hab- yeah. And basically needs to be torn down. An example of that, I believe the building in Kensington on 10th Street, where the people had to be evacuated, I think it was probably about four or five years ago now, and the building's torn down now. But that was the situation. It was a rental building. So one single owner who owned the building, and he wasn't properly maintaining the post-tension cables and ended up that the building needed to be torn down. Now, a condo building, the legislation says that these post-tension cables need to be inspected every two years, and they have to have a report every two years on if they're good, how many failed, how many are expected to fail, can we repair any. The difficulty becomes repairing. It's either very costly or not possible to repair in some cases. And so that's why some of the insurers see these buildings as a risk. They feel that at some point in the future, repairs won't be possible anymore and the building will have to come down. Now, that sounds scary, but it's <laughs> yeah. not like, especially in condos and because of the legislation and because of the board's taking care of this, you get reports every two years that says sort of the condition that your post-tension cables are in. And you'll know a long ways ahead of time if the post-tension cables are starting not to be able to be repaired or if it's just becoming such a big problem. It's not like something you'll do your inspection and all of a sudden tomorrow, everybody's going to have to get out of the building. It'll be something that the last three inspections are indicating that we're not really keeping ahead of this issue. And so then maybe they may have to consider something else. In your bylaws and all condos, in your bylaws, it will say what happens if building is no longer viable, either financially, structurally, all of that kind of thing. Interesting. Probably not fair to put all post-tension cable buildings in the same kind of basket or, right? Like, were some built better? Are there some out there that actually aren't as concerning or are they all kind of reasonably concerning? It's hard to say. I don't know enough about it to make that assessment. I know that there's post-tension cable buildings, like in New York City, for example, that were built in like the 50s, 60s and still exist today. And I know of a couple post-tension buildings in Calgary where they're able to maintain their post-tension cables and there's no expected issue. As strands break, they're able to replace. Depends on access, how easily they can get into these cables and make sure they need to replace that they can. So I think each building would be unique in that respect. I don't run into it often anymore, and mostly because people just don't want to buy them. If there's somebody out there who won't insure it, they just don't want to take the You basically have to pay cash or you can't be financing it, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, over 20% down, the banks will usually still finance you. Some banks have some lists, but not all banks. And there's B&C lenders. So you can get financing, but you can't do it with less than 20% down for sure. 
And then how do you define a high rise? So like if we were in, say, a six story building, like is there a certain number of stories where it's more likely to have post tension than not? So we weren't allowed to build over four stories in wood until recently in Calgary. So anything over four stories would be concrete. I would say probably six stories plus. There's a potential if it was built in that sort of 78 to 88 time period and it's over six stories, there's a potential that there could be post-tension cables used in the construction. Okay, that's good information. How do you view a condo? Let's say you're showing client condos and you're like, hey, this is a beautiful building. I like the fees seem good. It's older, but it's only, say, 12 or 14 units versus, hey, the building across the street has 200 units. What are maybe some of the pros and cons to making a decision on one or the other? So, yeah, there's definitely pros and cons. I myself live in a condo that's 14 units. That's a small, sort of unique building in Sunnyside. And some of the pros of living in a building like that is you do get to know your neighbors. It's much more of a community. There's people, the neighbors will be on the lawn having a barbecue and everybody will join. And so everybody kind of knows each other. And as things are happening in the building, there's much more conversation sort of day to day. You're just generally more informed with what's going or can be with what's going on in the building in the smaller condos because you're running into these people in the hallways and you're talking and maybe your next door neighbor is on the board, maybe you're on the board, but the chances that somebody that you're close with or yourself is on the board in a building like that are pretty good. In the larger condos, you don't really get that information is provided through the portal or the website or through notes left on the doors and stuff like that. You're not really privy to the month-to-month meetings unless you're ordering copies of that. And so you don't really get as much of a community feel from the larger building. But in the smaller buildings, you're much more exposed to risk. The great example is insurance costs and how much they rose and how quickly they rose. It was much harder for smaller buildings to pay for it. We had to raise our fees considerably, 25 to 35% range over the last couple of years because of partly utility costs, but I'd say mostly the rise in insurance rates. Whereas a larger building, you're spreading a lot of these things over a great more many people. And so then it, it tends to reduce the costs of emergencies in larger buildings versus smaller buildings because of the amount of people that you can spread this over. Another aspect too is a smaller building may take up the same size land as a 24-story high-rise. As a 24-story high-rise, so you've got the same size roof. And so when your roof needs to be replaced, it's over 14 people when their new roof needs to be replaced. There's some differences, obviously, but it's over 200 people. And so in a lot of cases, you'll see the condo fees are much less prone to swing. And if they do swing, that swing is much less pronounced in the larger buildings. In the smaller buildings, you can have some large swings in condo fees, large increases in small periods of time. But the other aspect with smaller condos is, for example, in our reserve fund, it said we need a new fence around each side of the building. And it was going to cost around, I think, fifteen dollars to $18,000 for the fence. We decided to build it ourselves, and we did it for like $1,200 in materials. Wow. So then that takes... Like seven to fifteen thousand dollars off the reserve expense, 
for the owners and, and everybody participated. So those opportunities exist in smaller buildings that you'd never see that in a larger building. There's just too much liability. They're not going to allow owners to mess with the uh, the building at all, except in their suite. Yeah, thank you for that. That was a great explanation. And I think that's really helpful for anybody thinking, of, you know, just to be able to see the difference in the two community differences. I could see that being pretty significant as well. I think one of the trends too in high rises, at least lately, I think you're seeing a lot more amenities and a lot higher end amenities being provided in some of the newer high rises, especially in the inner city. So you're not going to get that usually in a smaller building. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, we're getting pretty close to the end here. Just going to hit you with a few like more rapid response, personal okay. questions. So what's a book or a movie you'd recommend? That's a tough one. <laughs> it's not a book I've read. I have read the preface and I am planning to read it. Heard great things about it. And it's very timely. It's called The Fourth Turning. And it's about the cycles of society, basically, and maybe happening over the next 10 to 20 years based on what's happened over society's history. So it sounds like it's going to be pretty good. I've had good reviews of it. Yeah. I can't remember the name of the author, the books in the other room, but The Fourth Turning, they should come up with something. That sounds interesting. Maybe a little bit scary to read, too. Uh, maybe. <laughs> okay, where's somewhere you want, like a bucket list place you'd like to travel, but you haven't been? So Japan. And actually, we booked our flights. We're going in May next year to Japan, and it should be awesome. It's one that's been on my list for a long, long time. It's just a super unique society and a lot of unique landscapes, buildings, etc. So I'm excited to go there. Oh, that's awesome, man. That'll be amazing. Last question, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you that uh, want to reach out? The best way is text or email. And everybody knows this. There's so many with the robocalls and, and all of that stuff going on nowadays. It's hard for me to answer my phone when I don't recognize the number. But I always return calls or respond to texts right away. So 403-589-9850 is my phone number. And then cfenimore at cirrealty.ca is my email. Awesome, Chris. Thank you so much for being on the show again. I always enjoy chatting with you and having you on the show. Definitely. Thanks for having me, Corey. It's been great. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. I'm an investment-focused real estate agent in Calgary, Alberta. I'm also an entrepreneur, Red Seal electrician, and I hold a Master Home Inspection Certification. If you're thinking about investing in the Calgary area, please reach out and let me put my real estate expertise to work for you. I can be reached at 587-893-2272. Follow me on Instagram at PeckfordCorey, or my website is CoreyPeckford.com. Plus, we have a Facebook group. It's Calgary Real Estate Investing Group, so Craig for short. Please follow that. If you're getting great value from this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. That would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.